0: 1 Peter 1, 3-9, who are you? If someone asked, who are you, you usually answer with your name, your likes, sports you play, or hobbies you might enjoy. But who are we really, and who does God say we are? In 1 Peter 1, 3-9, it states, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who, according to his abundant mercy, has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead, an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through salvation, ready to be revealed in the last of time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold, That perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found a praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom whom, whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Today I would like to discuss three points. Number one. He says, we are a people who have living hope. By his abundant mercy, we have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have his hope and joy, even if we sit alone at lunch, don't make the team, and get less than our best grade on a test, or fall way short in the attitude department. His sacrifice is a gift to you. Our hope in him means we belong to him. Isaiah 40, 31 says, but those who... But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. This is who you are. Number two, he says, we are people who have an inheritance. It is incorruptible and does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation. We think of an inheritance as something we did not earn. It was given to us by the good will of somebody else. Our accomplishments and rewards on earth here do not qualify what, for what was freely given to us. In John 10:27, it says, My sheep, listen to my voice. I know them. They follow me. We must follow his commandments, and we will receive the inheritance of eternal life. This is who you are. Number three, he says we are to have faith more precious than gold. Ephesians 2, eight says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. My faith cannot belong to my mom or dad. I have to figure out what my faith means to me. I've heard faith is kind of like duct tape. You can always rely on it. You know, You know that when you need to patch or hold something together, you can always trust the duct tape to do its job. Well, that's pretty much what faith is. God will provide for me no matter what I face. I can rely on God no matter what is going on in my world. He is way more dependable than duct tape. A person of faith is who you are. We have not seen God, but he still shows us who we really are. In 1 Peter 1.8, we see that we can rejoice with a joy inexpressible, full of glory, and receiving the end of your faith with the salvation of your souls. We are his living hope through the faith of an amazing heavenly inheritance to look forward to. In conclusion, we have an inheritance which is incorruptible and that never goes away because of God's abundant mercy. We have had struggles, but because our faith has endured and we haven't drifted away, we have an inheritance in heaven, and at the end of our time, we will receive the inheritance of God, which is a life in heaven.
1: A driver's license examiner in California recalled the story of a young boy going in for his final driver's license exam. This examiner said his only mistake was after stopping after the exam and breathing a sigh of relief, he said, Well, I'm glad I don't have to drive like that all the time. (laughs) The funny thing is, is that this mindset is found in a lot of churchgoers today. Someone could put on a good front when people are watching, but the rest of the time they let down their standards. They think that no one is watching, so who cares what the sins they commit? This attitude that we see all around the church today is talked about in 1 Peter chapter 1. Now, in my opinion, these verses are one of the many things that every Christian should take up and use in their own lives. In verse 13 of this chapter, it reads, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is brought to you by the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter, in this verse, was speaking to people who grew up around pagan religion and were pressured by others to conform to Christianity. Peter pushed that aside and calls his readers to conform to holiness and seek their salvation. He makes a few points in these verses, and today I'm going to focus on three of these. First, we have to go over how mentality needs to be. Many people around the world have very split personalities. This trait could transfer over to our Christian lives when we are in different situations. A verse that explains that is Philippians 2.5, if we could turn there now. Now let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. This means that we need to conduct ourselves as Jesus at all times. That means not just at church, around friends, but even when no one is watching. Now this also means giving up old habits to become more holy. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 9, it talks of many different sinners, such as thieves, drunkards, adulterers, idolaters, that would not inherit the kingdom of heaven if they hadn't been washed in the blood of Jesus. They realized the power of God and he could save them and then that he could save them and decided to change their ways. If we look farther into that chapter, it tells us of being a part of God's own body. Now, if we are all a part of the body, why would we let down each other? Now, how do we keep God's body clean? If we turn back to 1 Peter chapter 1, in verse 17, it talks of how God wants to, us to conduct ourselves. It says in this verse, If you call on the Father, with, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourself so at the time of your stay here on earth in fear. When I first read this, I thought, Why would God want us to live in fear? I thought deeper into the meaning of this verse, which is code for asked Hiram. It practically means... He is always watching. For reference, if your mother watched your every moves, would you be fearful of sinning? That's how we always need to be. I know sometimes you may be tempted, thinking it is just you and Satan, but God is always watch over, watching over whatever you do. He does not want you to be afraid, and if you live like him, he will welcome you into his kingdom. But it doesn't matter how, act, how you act at church or how you act around friends, but it just matters how you act when you think no one is watching.
2: Facebook status is a feature that allows users to post and share a small amount of content on their profile, on their friends' walls, and Facebook news feeds. Users often use this space for updates about their day to day or to post clever quips. Why, what would your Christian walk status be? Oftentimes, this world bases their concepts off of their accomplishments and who they are is derived from what they do. Because of what God has given us, our identity in, is in Him as one of His children. Our worth isn't based off the things that we do, but it's based in who we are as God's people. Through baptism and faith, God has accepted, forgiven, and claimed us by baptism of the Holy Spirit, and he is always with us. There is no longer a need for a priest or a sacrifice to be accepted into his holy family. Jesus is the sacrifice which opened up a direct line between us and God without a middleman. In the Old Testament, God... The family of God was locked down to the Jews because that's what was said in the law, and that's what they practiced in their worship and even in their bloodline. Gentiles had become, had to become Jews through the practices like circumcision, but in the New Testament, Peter opens it up to everyone who obeys and is part of God's family. Because of our, flesh, because of our fleshly status is not as important as our spiritual status. And there are five characteristics of our new statute, as our new status of God's people. If you want to turn to First Peter two nine through ten, we'll take a look at that. Lost my marker. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the Pharisees of him who called you out of the darkness into the marvelous light, who once were not a people, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have, attained, have obtained mercy. The first characteristics, the first characteristic is that we are chosen. God has selected a group of the saved, which is the church. We see this in 1 Thessalonians 1, 4 through 5. For we know, brothers loved by God, that He has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Now as I've gotten older, now as I've gotten older, I've started doing things called job interviews. And uh when you go up against others for a job, it's the best feeling when you're one of the ones that are selected. But when you're not, it can hurt. Luckily, we don't have to worry about that in God's family, though. We're all accepted. God doesn't discriminate based on outward appearance, as we see in 1 Samuel 16:7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance, nor at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The second characteristic is that we are to be royal and holy. Through Christ, we have a royal status like kings and queens. We are in a privileged position as his people, a high standing and righteous and pure. Second Corinthians 7.1 reads, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body, Greek flesh and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Now, the third characteristic is that we are possessed by God. We are not spiritual orphans. We have a home in God, and we belong in a unique way. You can almost think of this like a car dealership, where if you're the owner of the dealership, you own every car, but you still have that one car that you bring home every night and you pick your kids up in, and the one that you invest your personal time taking care of. Just like God has ownership of everyone as their creator, but there's a different type of connection between him and his people. It's almost like a parental ownership with God as our Father, and us as one big family being brothers and sisters through Christ. We have responsibilities, but we are also immensely blessed. The fourth, the fourth characteristic is proclaiming that we brag on God because of what he does for us. Now, let's look at Psalms 34, 1 through 3, and that reads, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be on my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. God has done so much for us that we need to boast about what he's done for others to see. As we often hear in prayers, God has given us so much that we can't even name it all because of the blessings that are continually given to us. So our actions should continuously proclaim how great he is. And finally, our fifth characteristic is to revive Receive mercy, as we are recipients of mercy, because kindness, because of the kindness that God shows to us. Because our new statutes, as God, or new status as God's people, we no longer receive wrath, but instead we receive mercy. In First Thessalonians 5:9, we read, "For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ." To wrap this all up, let's read First Peter 2:9 through 10 again. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We are chosen, we are royal and holy, we are possessed by God, we are to proclaim him, and lastly, we have received his mercy." This should be our Christian status as we go throughout our day-to-day walk in Christ.
3: Sometimes we have to do things that are painful, like get shots, get a tooth pulled, or have surgery. But afterward, we are better off. Suffering can be like that. No one wants to suffer, but we will, and it can make us better afterward. Have you ever been in a situation where you had to suffer like Jesus did? We as Christians are called to suffer like Jesus did in a variety of ways. 1 Peter 2.21 states, For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example, that you should follow his steps. In this passage, Peter is telling us that we as Christians were called to follow the steps that Jesus took, even if suffering is a part of it. Even though we might have trials along the way, our mission as Christians is to spread the good news. First Peter 2.22-25 states, Who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body, on the tree that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. When Jesus began his ministry, many people in the world listened to him, but then eventually plied to kill him because they didn't believe that he was truly the Messiah. Among these people were the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and eventually the Jews also turned against him because they thought he was blaspheming. In regard to all this, Jesus was eventually hung on the cross and died for our sins. Jesus was the only way to free us from our sins and died innocently for us through his suffering. Jesus' suffering is also an example of how to endure suffering and how we should react. Matthew 5.39 states, But I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. We all need to work on this, even though it is hard. I believe if we all avoid holding grudges and use self-control, as the Bible says, much suffering could be prevented. Jesus' example of enduring pain is something we all need to try to do, even though it is difficult. Jesus example is supremely important and it should be the route we take every time. No one can get close to Jesus without suffering. Philippians 1:29 says, "For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him but to suffer for his sake." We need to make sure we respond like Jesus did when he was suffering. Here are five ways we can remember to do this. 1. Don't sin. Now, we aren't going to be perfect, but you try not to sin. You can watch your mouth. And Proverbs 18.21 says, Death and life are in power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. You also could not retaliate against people or a person that you have made mad. Don't threaten others and commit yourself to God. In conclusion, suffering like Jesus will never be easy. But if we do these five things and the other things mentioned we shouldn't have trouble doing, then we will never do it perfectly. But we have to try. Suffering has never been easy for anyone. For example, men in the military sometimes have to suffer in order to keep our country free. God has always helped us through the hardest times, and suffering is also one. So we as humans have the free will to choose to suffer like Jesus or not to. Which will you choose?
4: Usually when an employer is looking for uh, someone to employ, they look for certain things in that person. There are always certain requirements that a worker must meet, whether it be their experience, their education, or availability for a job. Just like there are certain requirements to be met for, sorry, just like there are certain requirements to be met, for a job, there are certain characteristics that God uh, looks for in a mature Christian. We'll be looking at First uh, Peter chapter three, verse eight through twelve, where I narrowed these verses down to five characteristics uh, God looks for in the uh, profile of a mature Christian. First Peter chapter three, verse eight through twelve reads: Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil If you're much of a Bible marker, I'll be throwing out a few uh, verses, so you can put a a few notes next to these verses. Um, First characteristic, um, in verse 8, Jesus calls us to have a pure heart and having unity in mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart and a humble mind. Matthew chapter 5, verse 8 reads, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Think about it this way. If we were living in a comic book and... uh, Every time someone had a thought, a little thought bubble would pop up for everybody to see. When people see your thought bubble, will they see unity, sympathy, brotherly affection, a tender heart, and a humble spirit? Something to think about. Second, uh, second characteristic. We should also have a forgiving heart and not retaliate when faced with trouble. Jesus calls us to, have, to love those who wrong us. Blessing them in word and deed, when your first response is to give blessing rather than insult, that is a sign of a growing, mature Christian. Do unto others as you would want to be treated. Um, Romans chapter 12, verse 19 through 21 reads, Beloved, never revenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is, vengeance is mine, I will pay,' says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by do, for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. If you think about it too, if Jesus had retaliated when he was taken by the Romans, we would all be lost. They would there would be no death on the cross for our sins. Third characteristic we're going to look at is um we're also called to have a controlled tongue in verse ten. We tend to act differently in different crowds sometimes, and uh our tongue will get out of control. I'll go ahead and read Proverbs chapter thirteen, verse three, if you'd like to turn there. Whoever guards his mouth preserves his life. He who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. <clears throat> I'll go ahead and read uh, James chapter three, verse five through eight as well. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staying the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, our reptile and sea creature, can be tamed, and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being, being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. That's James chapter 3, verse 5 through 8. Do you sometimes say things to your friends that you may filter when you talk to your parents or church family? We just don't think about it sometimes. Maybe we just kind of get caught up in the moment. The tongue is a poison that spreads. Just being around people, that curse is just enough to change the way you use your tongue. And then our fourth characteristic in verse 11 We're being called to be peacemakers and lead a life of purity. For instance, as a mature Christian, we should not come into the church or our workplace or anywhere and be the one to create drama. Uh, We should be the one to create peace when problems come up. Those who are with peace, with everyone, will see the Lord. Matthew 5, 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. We shouldn't just strive to find peace just when we're feeling extra nice. As a mature Christian, we should have the characteristics of a peacemaker. It's like when COVID hit and everybody started washing their hands constantly. It became a habit, a good one at that. Then over almost two years of masks, constant hand washing, and a mass shortage of toilet paper, we started forgetting that COVID even existed and quit doing these things. Why is it important that we seek to live these characteristics of a mature Christian? In verse 12 um, reads of First Peter chapter 3, Because the eye of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. The fifth characteristic of, of a mature Christian is being aware of his presence. God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Proverbs 15, uh, verse 3 states that the eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. As you think about these traits, ask God to help you grow and mature as a Christian. Look inwardly. Examine your heart regularly. Do you have the characteristics of of that God is looking for? And when the opportunity comes to exercise maturity,
5: seize it. We prepare for things all the time in our daily lives. We prepare for events such as meetings or dinners by getting dressed up. We prepare for sports by training. We condition so that we, ha- we can have enough strength in us to make it to the fourth quarter. Now let's take a basketball game and look at the game as if it was our life. We all know the game of basketball cannot end in a tie. Someone will win and someone will lose. Let's say, instead of winning the game or losing the game and going home after, that we are playing for our salvation. The end of the game is Judgment Day. Would you have enough in you to make it, and would you have done enough to win that game? Would you have taken the proper steps to prepare for the game? What are those steps? How can we prepare for Judgment Day? There is good news. We have the best coach. God is our coach. He has already laid out what we need to do, how we need to do it, and also provides us love and encouragement to do so. First Peter has something to say about preparing, and I have four major points. My first point comes from 1 Peter 4, 7. It says, But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in our prayers. We must have a clear head, pure in our thinking and purposefulness, in our prayer life. Would you trust a surgeon to work on you who hasn't had proper sleep and have their mind clear? Would you trust that surgeon who doesn't take their job seriously? In Galatians 5, 22 through 23, it says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. God says we must practice all of these things if we want to make it to the kingdom of heaven. My second point comes from 1 Peter 4:8, which says, "And above all things, and above all things, have fervent love for one another, will I'm so sorry. And above all things have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins." Jesus commanded this it is important. 1 Corinthians sixteen fourteen says, Let all that you do be done with love. John thirteen thirty four through 35 says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. But this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. These are just a few of many verses in the Bible where God tells us to love one another, which shows us just how important it is to us. I take it as kind of like how my parents told me tell me to do stuff over and over and over. I don't know what's more, the amount of times my dad tells me to take the trash out or the amount of times God mentions loving one another. What I do know is it is important, and they both include love. My third point comes from verse 9. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. This basically means stop complaining. Nobody likes a complainer. Complaining is easy, we all do it. I complain a lot, I'll admit. I complain about school, work, chores, my sisters, and the list goes on. God tells us we need to work at it, not complaining to be friendly and helpful to all. Philippians 2.14 says, do all things without complaining and disputing. My fourth and final point comes from verses 10 through 11. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of god if anyone speaks let him speak as the oracles of god if anyone ministers let him do it as with the ability which god supplies that in all things god may be glorified through jesus christ to whom the glory and the dominion forever and ever amen we must use the gifts that god has given us in matthew 25 it talks about the parables of the talents i'm sure most of you know this parable and how the king gave each man talents and expected them to use those talents to bring back more The men with five and two talents doubled their talents, and the man who had one hit it and did nothing with it. We must not be like the man with one talent and not use our gifts that God has given us. We must find our talent, whether it is in teaching, preaching, in leadership, or behind the scenes. We all have a God-given talent, and we are commanded to use it as his disciples. Thankfully, the game of basketball is just that, a game, and we aren't playing for higher stakes like where we will spend eternity. However, every day we are, we are like in our everyday lives and should be preparing for our life and after our death. Everyday life is not a game. It is very real, and one day we will take our last breath here on earth. We must prepare every day like it will be our last. Let's take Peter's word seriously and get to work.
6: Clothing is big business in America. It's the third biggest manufacturing industry after automotive and technology. We use clothing to make us acceptable to our friends and to make statements about our interest and things that are important to us. Clothing is mentioned several times in the Bible. In Psalms twenty five, thirty six. Some were some were clothed in shame and dishonor. In Matthew we are told to be careful of wolves and sheep and sheep's clothing. Luke 24:49 tells us to be clothed in power. We're also told to be clothed with garments of salvation in Isaiah. In 1 Peter 5, 5-9, we read that we should be clothed in humility. Humility means freedom from pride and arrogance. In Proverbs 16, verse 18, we are told that God does not like pride. C.S. Lewis called pride a cancer. God is not out to hurt your pride, but he's he's out to kill it. The apostle Paul was humbled by his thorn in the flesh. He told Paul that his grace was sufficient. When when we humble ourselves, we are closest to God. God draws near the brokenhearted and those crushed in spirit. If we want to be humble, we should remember that what God has done for us. Once we Acknowledge that we are lost without him and incapable of living a life of peace, we draw near to him. This doesn't mean that the devil will leave us alone. This There's a famous quote that says, The enemy is not fighting you because he thinks you are weak. He's fighting you because you're strong. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthened me. In our humility, God is our strength. We are told to clothe ourselves in armor. He has equipped us with what we need to defeat the devil. We are uh, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, shoes of readiness, shield of faith, and the helmet of salvation. God protects us with armor, but he has also given us a weapon. The word of God is our sword. The armor protects us, and the sword defends. Christ used this weapon when he used When he was tempted, with every temptation, Christ quoted Scripture, and the devil left him to come back at another time. When we do not fold to temptation, he comes back when we are weaker. Second Corinthians twelve nine verse nine through ten reminds us that God's power is perfect in our weakness. As long as we remain humble and trust God, we can defeat the devil. A quote alike says. I heard the devil whisper in my ear, You are not strong enough to withstand the storm. Today I whispered back to the devil, I am the storm. With God we can cause the devil to flee. The word flee is significant because it doesn't mean that the devil just goes away. The devil runs as he would run from danger. The devil is wandering around looking for those who he can devour. If, we, if you feel that you have not been relying on God for your protection and would like to draw near to Him, in just a moment we'll sing an invitation song. If this is your invitation, please come forward as together we stand and sing.